Hello, welcome to Solomon's Temple. This episode, I wanted to go over the Quine Duhem thesis and its implications for the scientific method. Now, I don't know about you, but on a regular basis, I wake up in the morning thinking, you know what? The available data does not pick out a unique theory as being correct, and I just I just can't shake it. I'm, I'm always uh, running over that one and over and over in my head. I'm like a truck stuck in the mud on that one, just turning my wheels. No, of course not, but it is important. It is an important lens to view science through. That is under determination. That basically that what you have available to you does not give you the correct theory because the amount of data available is not enough to like quantize a, con a conclusive theory or between competing theories that might be at work about something you know maybe it's something about light or relativity or something like this some claim of the behavior of light uh, you know of course our perceptions the appearance of things and how they really are are two things and i kind of showed you that with the cargo example you know another way you could just uh, you have someone on a skateboard throw up a ball you know and when you're moving along with them on a plane the ball goes up and down but if you stay at your inertial frame and they go by on the skateboard throw it up on the horizon you'll see that it kind of arcs like this so the appearance of things obviously change in different contexts you justify your claim about what you're seeing about something or what the data is trying to reveal based on you know where you are in context is what would justify your conclusion but wouldn't in essence um, let you select one theory conclusively over another as correct it might rule out one theory in an instance based on the data but it doesn't mean that that other theory is gone or loses or or some other bullshit conception like that According to W.V. O'Quine, our experiments must be tested as a body of claims, not merely as a singular hypothesis, as a singular auxiliary hypothesis, where you plug in multiple ones, you can exchange them to different theories so that they may fit, or you could just, you know, plug in some other alternative in order to make theories stand up on its feet again. And that's why he, he thinks that our ability to discern conclusively on what theory or what a critical experiment would be like in order to to unconfirm something and, and to confirm a theory, that that outcome would be hard to come by because he argues that there is always a, re, a reinstatement of a causal explanation to be able to uphold a main view or belief or a theory. So the entire gap of claims that are tested on an individual basis, any of which are unavailable or able to be rejected or modified, they should be expected to be or questioned because the stronger the theory is, again, like Karl Popper said, the falsifiability of the theory or of the hypothesis or whatever you're examining will strengthen it if it still holds up after more and more scrutiny, that the more falsified it is, the better the theory or the belief or hypothesis. So when we're running experiments, we're testing an entire set of claims rather than just individual hypothesis. And that would be a more critical approach rather than always reinvigorating some theory because there is some other alternative that you could suppose about it. He's saying that our experience dictates if a belief stands tall by a body of beliefs, not individual beliefs. There is a web of beliefs affecting outer webs and that it only minorly is affected by the changes made on an outer belief, on a less significant core belief on what holds everything together, that if you affect something within the inner web, it would affect it a lot more majorly. So the, the more the outer kind of web beliefs would affect 
the uh, core beliefs maybe piecemeal but if you affect one of the, uh, the the core parts of the web it can change everything else around it and can really affect the entire web and it would be a, a, a lot uh, easier and um, you would have less uh, premises to try to attack if the inner web's being dismantled because maybe there's three core uh, maybe deductive uh, proofs that that generate its reality depending on what you know what the nature of the theory is there's different kinds of theories some more stronger than others i suppose but if you undercut and undermine what it is to conceive of that uh, deductive nature of that thing that props up your logic and gives you your worldview that's more drastic when you change the central elements like that there's also a phenomena where any experimental result can be accommodated within any theory whatsoever that you can include some sort of premise some sort of view or hypothesis that will work with some other version of a thesis being proposed so he's saying in order to have a crucial experiment you can't have new suppositions fly into play to say well maybe we found some disconfirmation but maybe that wasn't what disconfirms it and it's something else that we can plug in that reinstantiates why it still holds true with something like psychoanalysis, Freudian psychoanalysis, versus something like Einstein's relativity and the propagation and bending of light, Einstein's theory is a lot more easily able to be shown as possibly being incorrect. It's more of a gamble with that. It's more falsifiable rather than you, you're subject to confirming some type of behavior through the psychoanalytic lens that Freud uses. You can bring it all back to the penis pretty easily. Hey, I heard sunlight's pretty good for the penis. That's my uh, hypothesis. A solid hypothetical deductive proof would be something like all copper contains free electrons, all things with free electrons conduct electricity, therefore all copper conducts electricity. It's repeatable and observable, and it shows us consistently that with all of something, if it contains free electrons, that with all these things, with free electrons, they conduct electricity, so that if it is copper, and it is in fact free electrons, and it conducts electricity, then we conclude that all of these, cop these copper elements conduct electricity. It is implied and consistent with everything in that proof that it is a scientific fact, and there is no way to really fight off or fend off or compete with that kind of reasoning because it's repeatable one, and you, we, we've observed these things to the best of our ability, so it's what we have in explaining it. And it is a scientific model, but this is what it is. It's just completely consistent. And the the core has not been undermined by something else in order to tell us that there is something else that describes why copper is a conductor and that, yes, indeed, this element conducts electricity. Different scientific claims have been made about cold fusion. Cold fusion is generally not accepted by the scientific community. However, there is an outcry from a section of the scientific community that claims, yes, it has indeed happened, just not under repeatable conditions. So it's kind of like the, uh, the Bigfoot of, of energy right now. And of course, how great would that be, turning our lead into gold on a regular basis, transmuting whatever matter we want, wanted into other matters, you know, if we could get a hold of this kind of energy uh, transfer. Um, fusion is a reaction where two smaller nuclei join to make larger nucleus. In the Fleischmann, Fleischmann and Pons experiments, using electrochemistry to fuse deuterium nuclei at a low energy, which is like a kind of hydrogen, allegedly that the energy they put in, they got out a lot more, but there's an unsubstantial of this they never saw this again or no one else confirmed it 
there was a reproduction where an experiment was made by Chirota Kasagi, Tohoku University. They found that these deuterium ions of the variety of low energies were fired into metals that had been saturated with the same ion. The rates had decreased sharply at low energies because of Colum's barrier or electrical repulsion, thus unjustifying the first claim. It did essentially the opposite. So at that point it would be, was this a miracle of some sort or an experimental error that read differently? Sometimes that would just be hard to tell. Maybe certain conditions that were made at a, at a moment, it just happened to occur rather than at a, another moment. And the unpredictability of that, I suppose, makes it interesting. And, and just the need to want to go on with this sort of process, this scientific pro process it is at need. We need to try things. We need to invest in this because it would be awesome if we were able to fuse at, you know, low temperatures. Otherwise, having something get really, really hot, you need to protect, you know, that kind of mass because it's very dangerous and we wouldn't be able to utilize it either you know and of course the laws of physics are more generally approving of fusion happening at very high temperatures than at low at low ones but you could put that low fusion within your car and potentially derive just a, a, a converter of some type you know maybe taking water and running cars on water at that point or something like something like this or just taking you know dumps and dumps of material you know hydrogen a very abundant kind of uh, chemical and just getting what you know something else out of it i mean that would be yeah just that would help out so much with with uh, any energy crisis we wouldn't have an energy crisis anymore if cold fusion became you know a viable verifiable you know proof where we could start fusing things together you know with that science being mastered and we able to control matter in that way we wouldn't have any energy crisis anymore that would be a thing of the past so of course you'd want to put some of your shekels down on this. I want to gamble on that for sure. Uh, I don't know. Last episode I did something about, you know, what are these thoughts? I got into Eugene Krishnamurti's kind of attitude and process about thinking. I mean, of course, you know, I mean, what if it's just, you know, we, we've seen somatics. I don't know if anyone's familiar with somatics, but as vibrations are channeled into a different frequency, they create a different pattern. Maybe just different frequencies of things of your mind, of your, of the, of the, the thought recipient recipient you know that when you're at a certain frequency you're vibrating in a certain way and it's creating a different physical element in like your mind's eye almost like your you you know the whole process going through you is just like happening in that physical way i don't know i don't know how to describe what i'm trying to say but there's got to be a way to kind of maybe as a hypothesis everything is vibration vibration permeates with a frequency and changes its organization through that change since everything is vibration and changes by its frequency then maybe the mind is a as a receiver and experiencer of the matter that it's it's currently vibing on or <laughs> i don't i don't know that would be interesting um i'm sure they're getting into that i mean i don't know how they would or where they would start because you know it, there's a lack of um th there might be an experiential community that would say yes i could see it in my headspace and feel it in my intuitions but science of course requires or dismantles that whole belief by uh, with the core concept of we must verify it and measure it and so forth okie dokie then um thank you for tuning into this one it would be much appreciated if you visited my patreon page patreon.com forward slash solomon's temple for a modest donation i appreciate you swinging by for this one i'll see you next time bye bye